Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is our weekly podcast from Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And we talk about food, hunger, passion, and making a difference in the world. In this bonus episode of our series on the child tax credit, we'll be talking with a good friend of the podcast and a tireless warrior in the fight to end hunger, poverty, and homelessness. I'm talking about Reverend Jim Wallace. Jim is best known as the founder of Sojourners, a faith-based social change organization that recently celebrated its 50th anniversary, and is the author of many best-selling books, including God's Politics and America's Original Sin. And Jim's got a new job that we're going to be talking about in a moment, but let me just say a word of warm welcome, Jim. You've been on this podcast. You're the only person who's been on this podcast more than uh, the uh, rock star Sean Cassidy. So uh, stiff, stiff competition, but you're at the top now. Well, that's a blessing, but more blessing, Billy, to always be with you because ever since I first came on with you, I knew you before, of course, but came on with you, we are such kindred spirits. I find that time and time again. So another blessing for me to be on with you today. Well, thanks. And the one thing we haven't done, but we've kept threatening to do, uh, and we have to make it happen uh, if this pandemic continues to recede, uh, hopefully, uh, is we've got to find the time to uh, break bread together and sit down and have a meal, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I am. And you're buying, I think. For I'm buying. <laughs> or, or, our produ- or our producer, Paul Whittle's buying. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very eager to hear about what you've been doing on the work to extend the child tax credit. Uh, and some of that is as relevant as just uh, 15 minutes before we uh, began recording this conversation. So very exciting stuff. But uh, I've got to, I mentioned you've got a new job and I want folks to hear what it is. Um, a lot of people with your kind of resume might be thinking about cutting back on their workload. And instead, you have ended up founding a new department on faith and justice, a center for faith and justice at Georgetown University's Public Policy School. Uh, tell us about that, about your role, what you're, yeah. what you're teaching, how you're engaging with students. Well, it's a great gift, uh, one I didn't expect and was surprised by. I had decided that at 50 years, I was going to turn over the president job at Sojourners to a younger leader, a mentee, somebody I've been working with for a long time, Adam Taylor. Board said cool, and he said great, so we did that. And I knew I was never going to retire, but I wasn't sure exactly what I would do. So Georgetown came in, they offered me this. It's quite, it's quite amazing. It's the inaugural chair of faith and justice at Georgetown University, the, the school, the court school of public policy. They made me a professor of the practice, and so I can keep practicing. They've asked me to found and direct a new center for the whole university uh, on faith and justice. So, uh, Billy, these are my two favorite words, <laughs> faith and justice. They come out of my mouth every day. And so now I've got a chair. I'm told the only chair at any policy school in the country on faith and anything. So this is faith and justice at the McCourt School at Georgetown, and a whole new center, which we just finished staffing a half hour before I came on with you. We finally have our staff intact. We'll be open and running very soon. A center on faith and justice for the whole university, and not just for them, but they want to extend out. They want me to do what I just did this morning up on Capitol Hill, uh, which we can discuss around the child tax credit. So it's a center where I can be uh, messaging. We'll have faith and justice forums several times a year, big events across the university, across the country, uh, convene, advocate, bring people together, large and small groups of people. It's really faith and justice, I would say, the spirituality of social change. My class, my core class is faith. 
race, and politics. I'm on tomorrow again with those students, and they say, we've never heard those three put together before. <laughs> so we're putting together things that have not been together before and saying that the social change requires a spirituality for it to work. Well, you know, when I first heard about uh, the Center for Faith and Justice and your role as inaugural chair, I assumed it would be in the Divinity School or something like that. Uh, but the Public Policy School uh, says to me that these are uh, understanding faith and justice are essential ingredients of moving our society and our policy and the work of our government forward. People tend to think of them in different silos and you've been charged with uh, what's pretty awesome responsibility of you know, erasing those silos, bringing them together uh, and making uh, the connection to policy uh, so powerful. Well, you said that very well. And when Jack DeJoy, who's the president there and a dear friend of mine, said, where do you want this? I didn't want it in religion or theology. Bless their hearts. But that's kind of sometimes extracurricular to public policy. I wanted this in the policy school. And bless their hearts, the policy school people voted me onto their faculty to make that possible. So it really should be at the heart of policy. Just to give us the third dimension of this, tell us about the students. Who are they? What's their ambition? Why are they taking a class like this? Well, when I walk to campus tomorrow morning uh, on campus, my class, I'll see, I'll walk under banners which say, faith does justice. That's a Jesuit slogan. Or they say, uh, women and men for the common good, or women and men for others. These banners or educating the whole person. My class is as diverse as it can be in every way. First of all, I said, I want undergraduates and graduate students. So McCord is graduate school, but I've got undergraduates selected as well. Uh, they're majoring in policy, in government and politics, in journalism, in religion, in theology, uh, two, two uh, public health majors, two business majors. They're so diverse vocationally. And then uh, they're diverse, so completely racially, of course. They're black, white, Hispanic, Asian American, uh, lots of women of color in the class every year. And they're diverse religiously, very much so. So some are Catholic and some are Christian, some are not either. Some are Jewish, they're Buddhist, they're, they're, they're Islamic. Uh, they're they're not, nothing at all and they needed to be assured that was okay. In the first class I taught, I taught this class, first of all, at Harvard a long time ago, and Jack DeJoya lured me down. But the first time I, I make him go around the room. Who are they? What's their major? Where they're from? Because where you live and from is very important for who you are. And, and uh, why I took class. And so this, this is a great little story. My most devout student turned out to be was a young, young black student from a black church at the Kennedy School of Government. He said, well, I'm here because I'm a born-again disciple of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and this class will give glory to God. Hallelujah. County School of Government, he says this. The woman who's next in line to speak next to him, quietly, under her breath, says so we can all hear, oh, shit. Oh, shit. I'm a feminist, lesbian, agnostic. I'm here to give this one more chance. Well, they became great friends over that course. And I tell my students, if you're anywhere between those two, you're welcome in this class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could just hear in your voice how excited you are and how much uh, joy you're taking out of the diversity of the students and their interest in moving forward here. Really exciting. Um, maybe I can catch you in action someday and come audit a class. 
Oh, I, I'll, I'll bring, I have these guest lectures every week because I want to bring many voices into this. So I'd love to bring you in the class sometime as a voice for them to hear and have a conversation with. Well, that would be fun. And I'm also happy to just sit in the back and learn. Um, let's talk child tax credit. You've just come from a really important meeting on Capitol Hill with um, some of the movers and shakers who are making the child tax credit happen, including Speaker Pelosi and Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. This was, uh, as I understand it, a kind of a coalition of faith organizations um, and would love to hear both how the coalition came, how and why the coalition came together around this issue and what happened at the press conference, because it sounds like some new information came out about what might be the compromise that keeps the child tax credit alive. Well, indeed, it was. It turned out to be quite an important event, I think. Uh, we came together across many of our theological and political boundaries in the faith community uh, to support the child tax credit and the other critical factors in this, call it the reconciliation bill, the, the human infrastructure bill, whatever you want to call this. And we were... Catholics were there and evangelicals were there, black church leaders, mainline Protestants, Latino leaders, the Salvation Army is supporting this bread for the world, sojourners, of course, uh, uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, rabbis were there. Everybody was there to show we don't agree on everything, a lot of things, but we do on this. And this is a moment in time. In fact, my opening remark, I'll just say, word about how I started, I said, and we were there to speak up and out. And then because we were there, you had the speaker want to show up and she did. And she, she was her wonderful self talking about children. Rosa Delora, who's the mother of the child tax credit and Catholic uh, and talked about her Catholic commitment. She was there. Uh, a number of other members of Congress were there. But what we said was this, I, I said, let me start my remarks with a, with a religious word. Not a political word, but a religious one. Uh, I said the religious word is kairos, kairos, which is a biblical word for time, but not the usual tick-tock regular time. That word is called chronos, kairos and chronos, kairos in the Bible. How do you spell kairos, Jim? K-A-I-R-O-S, K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos, chronos, two words. They both mean time. One means TikTok, regular time, the laborious time that Capitol Hill lives with every day. They're totally a Kronos institution. <laughs> but Kairos refers in the Bible to a unique moment when the world has the potential to change dramatically, a moment that can change things dramatically. So it's almost not even regular time. So even a place as hostile to change as Washington, D.C., and I looked right at the Capitol when I said this, uh, even a place like this can experience a Kairos moment. So right now, I said, we have a Kairos moment on Capitol Hill, an unprecedented, once-in-a-generation opportunity to drastically reduce poverty through the expansion of the child tax credit and other key factors in this budget reconciliation bill. And I said, this is not pie in the sky. We know the child tax credit works just this summer. Billy, as you know so well, it helped keep more than 3 million children out of poverty. Uh, it will help and already has helped families make ends meet, buy diapers, formula. And, and don't forget food, right? Which so many families use the child tax credit for so far. If buying groceries, 
is probably what most people have used most of this for. <laughs> it's about putting food on the table. So the end, and I'll just say, to end the child tax credit, now would be pulling the rug out from working families, just as many of them are finally getting back on their feet after a long and painful pandemic. So this is now. Kairos means not then, not next session, not next month, now. Uh, do this now or lose the opportunity. This is a moment of Kairos. And I was trying to educate the people of Congress to the meaning of a word. It's Kairos time. For me, that means gospel time on Capitol Hill. If we miss this moment, it could disappear for a lifetime. So, Jim, given what you're saying, uh, I sit here thinking, and I've, I've actually been thinking it before you said what you just said, but uh, you said it so powerfully and so well. Why is this even an issue right now? G give us your political lens on why are we fighting so hard to keep this child tax credit? Uh, it's relatively new. Uh, the early indications are that it's making a powerful, powerful difference for families on the kind of essentials that you just described. Uh, why are we where we are? Well, um, as Rosa Delora, again, call her the mother of CTC, she's calling for this to be permanent, period, round the clock, going forward. And she points out that if we did this for poor families, it would actually reduce over time the amount of money is spent just fixing up things that really are broken. This would sustain families to buy those groceries, uh, to, to, you know, to be on that sports team, which they can't afford to be on, to buy diapers and formulas, everything, pay the rent. How many, how many American families are like one paycheck away from disaster? And this would change all of that. So it makes total sense. Yet it's, it's a new thing for Washington to, to consider. Let me just be blunt. I'll be blunt here. Reports are coming out today that the enhanced CTC is likely only going to be extended for one year. As has always been true, unfortunately, continues to be true that when the government wants to tighten its belt, tighten its belt, not spend so much, it tightens the belt around the necks of the poor. And when they want to be fiscally responsible, as some opponents are saying, fiscally responsible, they do it on the backs of the lowest income families and children. And that's not just wrong, that's sinful. And that's what they do. That's what they do. The other thing that we said, um, which has never been said, I don't think ever before, by religious leaders, is that um, a country that picks the pockets of the poor while allowing big companies equipped with armies of lobbyists to pay zero in taxes is a country with no Christian conscience. So those who have benefited most should contribute to the common good and invest the most in the vulnerable. That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. When you have benefited, you are obligated to invest in and support and take care of the vulnerable. Does Congress believe as much about children as does corporations? This is very simple. Fiscal responsibility is fine, but you don't tighten your belt around the necks of the poor or put this all on their back. That's just wrong and it is, it, it is anti-religious. So we're saying, here's faith leaders, Billy, in our letter, which is accessible on the circleofprotection.org re website, circleofprotection, 
COP.org, has 10 videos of heads of churches calling upon their denominations. And this letter which says, um, uh, God, God does not like um, uh, when people gather wealth around them and the poor are left out and behind. That makes God angry. So we are calling, we as faith leaders, calling for large corporations and wealthy individuals to pay for this. I've never heard that before from faith leaders. They're saying, you pay for this. We will pay for this by taxing you. That's biblical, we're saying. And the, the evangelicals have signed that. So the this is amazing. Well, I, had a, I had a conversation yesterday um, with a man who's been a very generous supporter of our work to end childhood hunger. Uh, he's a moderate uh, Republican, uh, although, you know, barely, not really political, but, you know, leans Republican, somewhat conservative, passionate about childhood hunger. But when we started to talk about the child tax credit, uh, he started to express uh, what he called a lot of concern about a culture of entitlement. Uh, and, you know, what that said to me was that we've still got work to do in amplifying what you, Jim, just said about how critical this is to the basic needs of families and how many families are just one p paycheck away. This is not about being able to sit back and, um, and, and, and watch life go by and not earn a paycheck. In fact, there's many working families that are part of this. But when you hear concerns about this kind of culture of entitlement, uh, what else should we be saying in response to that? Well, let me also comment on what he might also be saying, as some religious people do who are concerned about this kind of thing. They say, when I say, like I did today, there are 2,000 verses in the Bible, 2,000, about taking care of the poor. 2,000 verses. They say, well, yeah, that's true, but that means individually. That means charity. That means it's not government. Actually, it is. And the rabbi was there with me, and I said, in all the Hebrew scriptures, it calls on kings and rulers to take care of the poor, the prophets, kings and rulers, government, and not just Israel's king and rulers. It says, in fact, that kings and rulers, those who rule, will be defined, will be judged by how they treat the poor and vulnerable, period. It's all in the Bible. So don't privatize and individualize that for me which is just an American thing to do, but not biblical. The Bible says we are all responsible individually, collectively, and particularly those who have governmental responsibilities and those who have wealth are particularly responsible. So no, there is an entitlement culture and it runs Capitol Hill. It runs Capitol Hill. It's lobbyists, it's lobbyists who buy and pay, and I'll just say that, buy and pay for a legislation on Capitol Hill. I mean, I have got friends who are senators who have told me that they have to spend three hours a day, three hours a day, often at night, in fundraising to win re-election. And in these de debates, I don't want to get into particulars and details, but in the two senators who are being, I would call, obstructionists here, both of them have key loyalties and ties to, to industries that are vitally involved in opposing these Bills. So let's talk about entitlement culture. Let's talk about members of Congress and the Senate who spend so much of their time fundraising with rich people to get reelected. And really, we want to take fiscal responsibility for making our poorest families 
pay the bill. Let's cut from them. No one talked about the massive defense spending we just did this week and all kinds of weapons full of corruption, boondoggles. No one talked about fiscal responsibility there. But we do. Why do we talk about this only when it applies to kids? Uh, Entitlement culture applies only to poor families. Really? Really? That says more about who we are and where we sit and who we know and who we don't know. I want to tell you, if you know poor families, not just think you know or imagine what they're like, if you know poor people in families who work multiple jobs and still get food stamps, most people who get food stamps are already working full-time, often multiple, and still don't make enough to feed their kids. You know that very well. So let's take responsibility here and say what we don't know when we live in bubbles apart from the people we're talking about. If you know them and know their kids and know their struggles and talk to them late at night about their health issues, their, their kid issues, their school issues, if you, if you know those families, you would, not call, you would not call the child tax credit an entitlement. You don't know those families if you say that. All right. Next time I talk to this fellow, I'm bringing you with me. That's one of the best responses I've ever heard. And I'm, I'm with you completely. Uh, I got a, I, this is kind of a personal question. As I, as I hear you talking about 2000 verses in the Bible about taking care of the poor uh, and how they're talking about kings and rulers and, and, and how that translates into government. Uh, do, do you have like a lifelong frustration that more people haven't read more of the Bible or do you just kind of bite your tongue and calmly, patiently re-explain what's in the Bible? Well, when I was in seminary way back in the day, as a while back now, uh, we did a study in those first seminary days of all these texts. We found them all in the Bible, all these texts. We found more than 2,000. And we took an old Bible and a pair of scissors and literally cut all those texts out of the Bible, cut them out. It took a long time, and the floor was full of, of the texts we had just cut out. The Bible was full of holes. It wouldn't hold together. It was falling apart in my hands. I would take it out with me to preach, and I would say, brothers and sisters, this is our American Bible. It's full of holes from all we have taken out or paid no attention to. Let's just start cutting this out, because that's how we act. We act like it isn't there. So I said to today, and I'll say it again, when the media deals with religious issues, why is something like refusing to take a vaccination, claiming it violates your conscience, considered a religious issue, but helping poor people is not? Really? Really? So I want to I read the Bible. Don't tell me about the Bible. Don't use the Bible. Don't mention the Bible. Don't, don't use the Bible in your argument and then, then never read it. Read the Bible and it'll change your life. It's got to make you a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> That's what I was getting at, right? And you're so you're 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 kind of passionately dispassionate about, you know, making the case for reading the Bible. But uh, given what you know is in there, it must make you nuts. What I'm talking about is not some kind of Democrat, uh, Republican, uh, certainly not as as the kind of say socialism. No, this is about restoring the Word of God. Restoring the Word of God, P- putting those. In fact, there's a new Bible now. You, you love to see it. It's called the Poverty Bible. They actually take that story I just told you, and this is a World Vision Bible Society Bible. They have put back all those scriptures into the Bible in orange. 
There's a poverty Bible with all those scriptures now put back in in orange. It's called the poverty Bible. It's right there. It's all right. There. And who, who puts it out? Jim? Uh, uh, World Vision has and the American Bible Society has. It's called the poverty Bible. It's a wonderful Bible with all those texts pulled off the floor and put back in the Bible. I'm just saying, read the Bible. <laughs> uh, I know we're coming to the end of our time, but I've got a good question and it's so good that I'm not going to take credit for it because it's not mine. Our producer, Paul Whittle, sent it to me, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and it's about how the, the phrase, you know, polarized political climate has become such a cliche and we hear it all the time when we talk about the government's inability to, to find or create common ground. But uh, in what you've been describing, you seem to have pulled off what qualifies as a kind of a miracle in uniting conservative and progressive faith groups in support of lifting children out of poverty. Uh, both uh, Two questions, I guess. One is, how do you create that common bond? And are there lessons there that might help us make progress in other areas? Well, I, I really hope and pray so. And I, I really did um, experience that just today. Uh, here's a Congress that is completely as they say, polarized, divided. Uh, and the story, the reason people don't get this is all we hear is numbers, 6.5 trillion, 3.5, 2.8, 1.7. They get mesmerized by numbers. Then they hear polarization. Well, Republican, Democrat, moderate, progressive. Here's Ber Bernie and Joe, uh, you know, taking a picture together. And, and they don't know what really is at stake here. So in front of their polarized, environment they're building here are these people standing there who don't agree on everything we don't agree on everything but there we were the national association of evangelicals and the salvation army is with them and city gate the rescue people mostly republicans in their constituencies the catholics were there again this is not a left-wing group uh, mainline denominations very mixed very uh, you know red blue purple churches um, it wasn't just advocates. It wasn't just like sojourners and bread for the world and Jim Wallace. It was all these groups and people, the Catholic sisters, saying all the Catholic nuns in the country, basically, saying, wait a minute, this is gospel for us. This isn't politics. This is gospel. This is, this is faithfulness. This is moral imperative, faith imperative. So I say this, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Don't go left, don't go right, go deeper to your faith, to whatever your moral conscience is, to, to whatever is are the core values that, that you have. That's what has to guide us now. And, and political polarization is used against doing the right thing. And so w when I have, you know, pastors call me and say they're preaching for vaccinations in their pulpits and getting death threats, something's gone terribly wrong here, that we become so politicized, we become so so put into political conflict categories, we fail to find what the gospel is. So today, to me, was uh, I wish every member of Congress could have just watched these faith leaders who have constituencies in both of their parties speak on behalf of what you and I are now so passionate about, a child tax credit. And what they ought to say, polarization aside, if we have our faith and moral leaders saying this should unite us and pull us together, let it be so. Let us unite and pull together on this question because our faith leaders are telling us to do that. Well, th thanks for making that type of coalition and common ground happen. And 
just thanks for leading so powerfully on behalf of people whose voices should be heard and aren't, but you're able to elevate theirs through yours. Um, really, really grateful, Jim. Well, this is a Kairos time, and that means that this can't just be put off till next next congressional season. We all have to, as you're telling all your people, stand up now, speak up now, call your member of Congress, call your senator, especially if you live in West, if you live in West Virginia and in Arizona, keep calling, <laughs> keep calling. We got to speak out and stand up and say, "This is the moment. If we lose this chance now, we may never find it again. This is the time. We have to act right here, right now." Do it or lose it is where we are. Jim, before we uh, close, let's make sure people know how to find out more information about the Center for Faith and Justice at Georgetown. Well, um, we're uh, just the, uh, uh, our website is just just barely up. It's centerforfaithandjustice.org, centerforfaithandjustice.org. And uh, Circle of Protection, cop.org, is all the, the videos from all the you know, uh, Michael Curry, Episcopal, you all know him, all you guys are speaking. So I'd say circular protection for this and the uh, Center for Faith and Justice.org at Georgetown. We've been talking to Jim, Jim Wallace. Uh, great to have you back. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners uh, for rejoining the special bonus episode of Ad Passion and Stir. Thanks to our producer, Paul Whittle at District Productive, and our team, Joanna Weber, Kelly Griffin, Debbie Shore, and the entire uh, staff of Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Mm-hmm.